0: First Chronicles 11, verse 1. I know we've jumped around a bit. Sunday we were in chapter 13. The week before that we took a, a piece out of chapter 11. And, and before that, on Wednesday night, we did chapters 9 and 10. So we're going to pick up in chapter 11. We're going to move through. The plan, anyway, is to go through chapter 16. For those of you who are faint of heart, just trust me. We'll get there. First 1 of chapter 11 begins, Then all Israel gathered to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. I I love how how people will rally around a man when they realize he's the best choice. <laughs> or in David's case, the only choice. When all the other choices were fading away, suddenly then, hey, we knew all along, <laughs> you were our man, David. But they finally do come around. And in verse 3 it says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. Now Hebron is, is somewhat south southeast of uh, Jerusalem. Hebron is a difficult place in Israel today. It's a divided city between Palestinian Arabs and, and really um, hardcore Jewish people. I mean, you're, you're talking, the battle lines are fierce in Hebron. So one place in Israel I've been that I was uncomfortable the whole time I was there. I could not wait to get back across the security fence back into Jerusalem where I felt safe again. But at this point, this is where David began. You might recall this. He began anointed by the tribe of Judah there in Hebron. Finally, all Israel comes to Hebron, and then ultimately he makes his way up to Jerusalem, as we'll see tonight. All the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel, his third anointing, as we talked about, according to the word of the Lord through Samuel. Verse 4. Then David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, and the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, were there. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now stop right there for a moment because we need to recognize something here as we study through this, that the significance of Jerusalem in God's overall plan cannot be overstated. Psalm 48, verse 2, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. Psalm 87, verse 2, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Psalm 132, verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, this is the Lord speaking, I have desired it. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 2, he says, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of her, of Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountains of the Lord will be called the holy mountain. Is Jerusalem called the city of truth today? Boy, in the world today, you look at Jerusalem, and what do we see? A city of division. A city of conflict. Not just between Palestinian and Jew, but even between Christians. Fights breaking out there in the church of the Holy Sepulchre, between the divisions, or in the church there in Bethlehem. It's pretty amazing. Jerusalem is not yet called the city of truth. It will be. Now, the first mention of the word Zion, in the Hebrew, Zion, which literally means a parched place or a sunny spot, depending on your perspective. But the first time it's mentioned in the Bible is 1 Samuel chapter 5. That's the parallel passage to what we're reading right here, 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 1 Samuel 5, 1 Chronicles 11 detail the same stories. We get some different bits and pieces out of each one. But Zion is first mentioned there in 1 Samuel 5, and again we see it here in 1 Chronicles 11. The name Zion is important. It's referenced in the Scriptures 163 different times. Jerusalem itself, by the way, anyone know how many times it's named in the Bible? 814. From beginning to end, The city of Jerusalem is referred to 814 times, and Zion and Jerusalem are often used interchangeably, though Zion is a hill there in southeastern Jerusalem. Again, it means parched place or sunny spot. For some, it's a parched place. It's a place where they can't get what they want. For others, it's a sunny spot. That's what it was for David. He loved Zion. There was something about the city of David and living there he would come back from battle he just he wanted to remain in Zion it was there that David was happiest but again for some it is a parched place Zion that mountain in Jerusalem now we notice in verse 4 something else about Jerusalem it was also called Jebus that is the city belonging to the Jebusites now Jebus means trampled the tramplers were the Jebusites. And the city, they named Jebus after themselves, meaning tramplers. And for a period of time, it belonged to the Jebusites, which is interesting considering the history of the city. It is a trampled city. Dozens of times the city has been conquered and wiped out, literally razed to the ground, and then built back up. And layers and layers we've talked about of sediment and of civilizations there in Jerusalem in that city. Some 30 to 35 times this city has been waylaid and then built over the top of once again. So truly a city that has been trampled. And Jesus prophetically stated that in Luke twenty-one twenty-four. He said Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jebus is an appropriate name for the Jebusites to name that city who were living there. But I wonder, who was it that founded Jerusalem in the first place? Was it the Jebusites, but David saw it and wanted it and came and took it away and then it became the city of God? It it seems to me that, that the Lord always precedes everything else. And for me, for years, I wondered about this, about Jerusalem. Why would He take a city that already belonged to someone else? Why would God desire that for His habitation? Unless, in fact... He had already been there. I have a guess that that's exactly what happened. Before David came and conquered Jerusalem, even before the Jebusites 4,000 years ago were there in Jerusalem, we know it went by another name. Not Jerusalem, but Salem. Salem, which means peace. It was called the city of of peace, And the first mention of Jerusalem or Salem in Scripture shows us that enigmatic character, that, that strange, mysterious guy who goes by the name of, some of you know, Melchizedek. And he shows up in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham, Abram at the time, had just returned from a, from a great battle. And he had fought against four different kings. He went actually into the battle to rescue Lot. And by some some masterful maneuvers, he takes his 318 men, goes up against four kings and all of their armies, beats them badly, soundly defeats them, rescues Lot. Now he's coming back, and we're told in Genesis 14, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and it tells us he, that is Abram gave him, Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils of the battle he tithed to Melchizedek it's an act of worship why would anybody tithe to another human being but Abram tithes to this Melchizedek you can turn to don't do it right now but later check out Hebrews chapter 7 verses 2 and 3, because you find out a little bit more about this mysterious man, this Melchizedek. King Melchizedek. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He was from the city of peace, so he was king of righteousness, king of peace. When he sees Abram, he brings out two elements, bread and wine, which are pictures very clearly to you and I of communion, the body, the blood of Jesus Christ. And Abraham honors him, Abram, with a tithe of all the spoils. It's interesting, who is this guy? He is at least an amazing portrait early on in the scriptures of the true king of righteousness, king of peace, Jesus, priest of Most High God. Some think, myself included, that this is actually an early appearance of Jesus. Genesis 14, he shows up. It's called a Theophany or a Christophany. That is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus that freaks you out, don't let it. Jesus can show up any time He wants. I mean, being God, you have that prerogative. But I give you that short history. Bottom line to say this, it is possible that the very founding of Jerusalem was by the Lord, that originally the city of Salem founded there, and that King Melchizedek coming out gives us insight into a truth that God founded Jerusalem that it was the holy city, his city, chosen by God from the foundation. We know in Genesis 22 that he sent Abram right there to the middle of what would be, or what was Jerusalem, Salem, to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. One of a few mountains, Mount Scopus, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, that all encompass the city, or the city encompasses those mountains there, Jerusalem. Something else just to be aware of, and that's that Jerusalem then, from God's perspective, if not the, the world's, is the geographical center of earth Jerusalem is that if you are going to pick anywhere on the entire planet that God says that's mine it's Jerusalem so however the city was built or founded the incident that follows is not the usurping of one person's authority for the Lord it's the claiming of the city that God had already chosen for himself long before I believe the Jebusites ever showed up verse 5 we'll pick up from there the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, You shall not enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. Now, David had said, Whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be the chief and commander. Joab, or Yoab, in the, it would be the pronunciation, the son of Zeruah, went up first, so he became chief. And then David dwelt in the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David. And he built the city all around, even from the Milo, even to the surrounding area. And Joab repaired the rest of the city. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. David issued a challenge to his men. He said, whoever can go up first gets to be my captain. Whoever's smart enough, sharp enough to get into that city and take down a Jebusite and lead my men in, you're going to be captain of the men. And so Joab emerges as the guy. How did it happen? It's a fascinating story. I really enjoy this one. It, we, we get some clues out of 2 Samuel. I'll read these to you. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6 tells us the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. The inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, an expanded version here, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away. They said that thinking David would not be able to enter there. The Jebusites taunted David. The blind and the lame are going to keep you guys out. <laughs> you don't have to see to keep David and his army away. You don't even have to have legs. We will keep you out, our weakest of men. Their taunt, however, was also a tactic. Because it's known historically that that armies sometimes would do this, defenders of cities, and I believe the Jebusites were one of these, they would take blind men and lame men and put them on the wall of the city at night. Now, it's actually pretty smart thinking, because a blind man wouldn't be affected by darkness. You know sometimes how when you're looking for something at night, and you're watching, and you're watching, your eyes can play tricks on you. Well, if you can't see anything anyway, your eyes aren't going to play tricks on you. Furthermore, being blind, your hearing will probably be sharper. So they would be the guys you'd want on the wall listening and keeping watch in the pitch black of night there around Jerusalem or Jebus. Why would they put laymen on the wall? Well, so if an attack came, they couldn't run away. (laughs) They'd have to scream for help until someone would come get them and take them down. So it was a great way to sound an alarm. Blind men... And lame men, and that's why in verse eight of Second Samuel five, David said, "Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel." And that's the other clue. How do you get into Jerusalem? This is a city among mountains, a city with sheer cliff faces on three sides. The only access really into the city would be to the north, and that would be heavily guarded. So, how do you get in? Well, this, this city, Zion, this parched place, this sunny spot up on a high hill, had one severe problem. Still has the same problem today. Water. How do we get water from down below the Gihon Spring? How do we get that up into the city to water the people living there? And David said, there's a way into this city. They've got to get water somehow. Figure it out. Look for the water tunnel. And so what happened was Joab went and found that water tunnel, a 75-foot shaft that plunged from the heights of Jerusalem down to the Kedron Valley to the Gihon Spring there. Later it was called, and you might recognize this, the Pool of Siloam, down in the lower part of Jerusalem. And that 75-foot shaft, they would either drop water buckets and and reel them up, or somehow they got water up and down that shaft. Joab found it. He shinnies up the shaft. He gets into the city. He takes down a Jebusite. The men follow him, and they conquer The city. That's how literally Joab shafted the (laughs) Jebusite. Now that shaft, that shaft, sorry, you know, that shaft was excavated and discovered in the late 80s. And you can see it. You can go to the Gihon Spring in Jerusalem and you can look up the shaft and see the very shaft that we're reading about in uh, 1 Chronicles 11. And I love when that happens. I love when the Scripture coincides with the physical reality and you look at it and go, wow. It's not that we don't, believe that it's true but I'll tell you what it does something to your faith when you begin to see these things it begins to shore it up in a, in a very special way well perhaps in memory of this story David's son Solomon wrote the following Proverbs 21 verse 22 a wise man scales the cities of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust a wise man will do that my friends there is a key to bringing down strongholds to taking down strongholds. I'm talking about fortresses of fear and bastions of blame and garrisons of guilt. Those strongholds in our life that ought not be there, that the enemy tries to set up, to trip us up. There's a way to deal with those. Generational patterns of sin that play themselves out over and over and over. Things learned learn from parents, learn from grandparents, that we find ourselves doing again. Those are the kinds of strongholds that I'm talking about. And there's a key to bringing them down. And gang, it is not more religion. As a matter of fact, let me state this clearly. Religion is itself a stronghold that will burden you. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, you tie up heavy weights on people. Burdens you're not even willing to carry yourself. You're not even willing to lift a finger to help. Heavy-duty religion—that is not the answer. We see this often in the church. Well, you got problems in your life. You need to go through my 12-step process to get out. And that's not a slam on the 12-step program. You got difficulties in your life. Well, I got five things you've got to do. You got to turn and pray five times toward Mecca every day. <laughs> You have to do this or that or the other. It's religion. And that is not how to break strongholds. It is not in the, in the way that you pray. You know, I, I still think a lot of times the reason why we have more silence than, than words when we pray together is because we're all just kind of not sure we're going to pray the right way. Tell you what, if you open up a prayer in the name of Jesus, you are already praying the right way. If you're calling out to God Most High, you're praying the right way. I, I, I never sit down with, with my now very young kids. I wouldn't look at, at, at little Naomi and just say, you know what, until you can speak this clearly to me, I am not listening. I want you to memorize this prayer on a card and then come talk to Dad. If you can bring that to me, the correct way, just go to Jesus. We talked about that Sunday. There's a right way and a wrong way and the right way is go, go to Jesus. Go through Jesus. Very, very simple. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 62, verse 6, He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge, is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. That's how you take down your strongholds. You believe in the stronghold. You run to the fortress, who is your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's so simple. Man complicates, God extricates. That's how it works. We make it harder and God comes in and goes, let me untie the knot. You know, we are like children trying to tie our shoes. You know, we get it all knotted up until our father has to sit down and go, okay, hang on, first of all, the tighter you pull on that, the more knotted up you're going to get. Let me just take care of it for you. And he unties us. Jesus said in John 8, 36, If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I looked and I looked and I looked. It does not say anywhere if Pastor Rick prays for you, you will be free indeed. I tried to find it. It's my concordance. just not there. If the Son makes you free. You know where the, where the breakdown is for us people of faith? It's that we don't believe the Son has made us free. We haven't yet accepted the freedom Jesus offers. If He's truly come into our heart and freed us, we're free. And we're not bound by all that old stuff. Paul said it was for freedom, Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You want to bust down strongholds in your life? Go to the stronghold of Jesus. And just say, Jesus, I can't do it. But I know You can and I trust You to do it. It's as simple as that. Verse 10 Verse 10 of First Chronicles 11. You know, we're going to skip on ahead. Verse 10 through 19 we already studied. That recounts the deeds of the three. Yahshobim, Eliezer, and Shema. Talked about that two Sundays ago. The three who broke into breaking through the lines of the Philistines into Bethlehem. Remember to get the water from Bethlehem. Take back to their King David. Those three water carriers. They were the three in the upper tier of the mighty men. The rest of chapter 11 now is going to list out the mighty men. Verse well, Verse 20. Chapter 11, verse 20. As for Abishai, or Abishai the brother of Joab, he was chief of the 30. He swung his spear against 300 and killed them. And he had a name as well as the 30. Of the three in the second rank, he was the most honored and became their commander. However, he did not attain to the first three. So there were, there were definitely levels of organization in David's army. That makes sense, especially to you military guys. The levels of organization, that's a that's a good way to go. So there were the three, and then there was the second tier of the three, and they were all within the 30. And it tells us, verse 22, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man, valiant man of Kabzeel, mighty indeed, struck down the two sons of Ariel of Moab, literally, that is, the two lion-like men of Moab. Two men with the fighting power of lions, This Benaiah struck them down. And then it says he also went down and killed a lion inside a pit on a snowy day. Which is just a really interesting little side note there. I would love to see the video on that story. (laughs) But I'll tell you one thing God does for him. He prepares him for the harder battle. First he has to fight two lion-like men. And he takes them down so that when he is in the pits on an icy cold day, a place that you could compare maybe to despair and a real lion comes after him he's ready to go Okay, the Lord will prepare you for what's coming you might not feel like it when it hits but it's interesting if you will draw back and look at what he's been doing in the weeks, months even years prior to tragedy or hardship or difficulty he has already prepared you to deal with it It's the grace of our Father working in our lives giving you the tools you need sometimes we don't see him because we're freaking out But if we pause and pray, he will show us. Remember what I taught you here? Remember the two lion-like men you took down before, Benaiah? You're ready to fight this lion in this pit. Verse 23 goes on and says, He killed an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. That's seven and a half feet. Not quite the nine or so feet of Goliath, but this is still a big dude. Now the Egyptian's hand, in his hand, was a spear like a weaver's beam. Big honking thing. But he went down to him with a club, and he snatched the spear from the Egyptians' hands and killed him with his own spear, turning the enemy's weapons against himself. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did, and had a name as well as the three mighty men. Behold, he was honored among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David appointed him over his guard. These two guys are mighty men of note. Uh, and we actually went a little further into the study of their lives back in 2nd Samuel 23 which you can go back and listen to if you missed that study the rest of the chapter now will list roughly 46 more mighty men going all the way to the end of the chapter verse 47 i just want to point out one and you can read through the list of names but when you get to verse 41 notice the name uriah the hittite does that sound familiar this should blow our minds For right here in the list of the mighty men of David, his most loyal, his most fierce fighting guys who aligned themselves with him, they came to him. They professed loyalty to him. This is the husband of none other than Bathsheba. This is the man that after David had had the affair with Bathsheba, he tries to cover it up. He invites Uriah to come home. And he gets him drunk there at the castle and says, go on home to your wife, hoping he'll go home, fall asleep, and she can claim, hey, yeah, I mean, we worked together that night and that's why I'm pregnant. But Uriah refuses to go home and enjoy any pleasure when his fellow soldiers, his fellow mighty men, are out on the battlefield so he sleeps at the king's gate. (laughs) David cannot get this guy to do what he needs so he sends him back with a note to Joab. Put Uriah out in the front lines of battle and when the fighting is fierce, withdraw from him. Murder him. This was not just some grunt on the front lines that David didn't know. This was one of his top guys. And I point that out simply to say, where there is sin in our lives, someone or something always dies. Oftentimes it's someone very close to us. As I've said before, none of us sin in a vacuum. When I sin, when I choose personally to do something sinful, I might fool myself into thinking it's just going to affect me. Worst case scenario, I'll deal with the consequences. Not so. Your family will deal with it. Your friends will deal with it. It will come back around. People will be hurt by it that you never intended. When David first caught eye of Bathsheba, I doubt he ever thought about the fact that one day he would be making the call to kill Uriah, one of his mighty men, one of the guys who went through thick and thin with David. But the Bible tells us, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And we think, oh, my death. If I sin, I die. Not necessarily. Someone else may die. And it may be that a relationship dies because of my sin choice. It may be that, that hope in someone else dies because of my friend choice. But something is going to die. The wages of sin is death. But praise the Lord, Paul says, the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, one other quick thing about this This mention of Uriah the Hittite is as close as we get in the entire book of 1 Chronicles to any of the sin of David. The story of Bathsheba is not recounted here as it's counted in the books of Samuel. Not at all. The writer doesn't touch it. As a matter of fact, the writer has a tendency in 1 and 2 Chronicles to elevate both David and Solomon. To really lift them up as, as prime guys, as good guys. For the Lord, that the sins, the problems, all the errors, the things that we see in First and Second Samuel, we don't see them in First and Second Chronicles at all. Why not? Because First and Second Chronicles are the chronicling. He's chronicling the line of Messiah, and he's showing the good side of Messiah, where, where Messiah is coming from. He's highlighting that Davidic line, and he's not focusing on the sin. And it also reminds us that God forgets our sin. David had already, by the time the book of Chronicles was written, he had repented. Well, he was no longer living by the time Chronicles was written. But his repentance, his turning back to God, his giving God his very life from that day forward was well known to the Lord. So that by the time 1 Chronicles was being penned by, as I told you, I think Ezra, don't put that in there. It's not necessary. I forgot all about it. Which is the way the Lord handles our sin. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now these were the ones who came to David at Ziklag while he was still restricted because of Saul the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were equipped with bows, using both the right hand and the left to sling uh, stones and to shoot arrows from the bow. They were Saul's kinsmen from Benjamin. Ziklag was Philistine territory. In fact, Ziklag was the city that that, uh, King Achish, the Philistine king, gave to David when he began to see that David was spending more time in Philistia and seemed to be more allied with the Philistines than he was with his own people Israel. So Achish gives Ziklag to David. David had That's where the mighty men begin to draw together to David. This is during the days of David's rejection. But I love what David's doing the whole time. And We don't see this in First Chronicles, but we know about this from before. From Ziklag, David is going out and making raids on Philistines. So he's functioning like a double agent. He has the king who thinks that he's a good guy and he's there living among them and and allied with them and yet he's sneaking out and he's raiding any Philistine armies or garrisons that are set up that might go against his people of Judah. So while he's on the other side of the fence he is fighting for his people he is still looking out for them. Now verses 3-7 through list these sons of Benjamin Saul's kinsmen lists them out who allied themselves with David down in verse 8. It tells us from the Gadites, there came over to David in the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for war who could handle a spear and a shield and whose faces, I love this description, were like the faces of lions and they were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. And he begins to list their names, Etzer and Obadiah and Eliab and Mishmanah, And Jeremiah and Ati and on down. If you skip down to verse 15, or 14, uh, these are the sons of Gad who were captains of the army. He who was least was equal to a hundred and greatest to a thousand. Verse 15. These are the ones who crossed the Jordan. Remember, Gad was one of the three tribes, or two and a half tribes, that lived on the other side, the eastern side of the Jordan. So these were the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month. That's the month of Nisan, that would be our month roughly around April time frame, when it was overflowing in all its banks. And they put to flight all those in the valleys, both to the east and to the west. These were some studly guys. These, they, they swam the Jordan in flood stage. When the Jordan would flood back in those days, not so much right now, because there's some serious water trouble in, in Israel... But in those days, in the springtime, when the Jordan would flood, it would flood a mile or more wide. And these guys swam that, got across it, even as it was this rushing river. These are strong, studly, bold, fearless, lion like men, who Samuel refers in first in chapter twenty two, verse two, as distressed and in debt and discontented. That's interesting. You know what it made me realize reading through that? It just goes to show that everyone has struggles. Don't be fooled. Just because someone looks like they've got it all together doesn't mean they're they're not struggling. Just because someone looks like they're strong in their faith doesn't mean that they're not in debt. Just because someone can stand up and and espouse Scripture does not mean that they are not dealing with distress and discontent. We all need a shepherd king. So these mighty men, great men of valor, were also the distressed and the in debt and the discontented, and they flooded to David because they saw in him the character of a shepherd. They said, that's the kind of man I want to have as king over me. Verse 16, Then some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold to David. David went out to meet them and said to them, If you come peacefully to me to help me, my heart shall be united with you. But... If to betray me to my adversary since there is no wrong in my hands. May the God of our fathers look on it and decide. I just love how David doesn't say if you've come to hurt me I'm going to take you down. I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to show you what's for. No, he says if you're against me may God reveal that. May God deal with you. What a great way to deal with your enemies. Or people who have an issue or a problem with you. Lord Jesus I pray that you'll deal with them. And you know what's great about praying that prayer? Is we can know for certain that the Lord will deal justly and mercifully. Whereas when we deal with those who are against us, we don't always do that. I love David's heart. It tells us in verse 18 now that then the Spirit came upon Amasai, who was chief of the 30. Remember, in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come on individuals For individual periods of time, maybe to bring a prophecy or a word from the Lord, but did not remain indwelling the person as is promised to us today. So the Spirit comes on Amasai, and he says, We are yours, O David, and, and with you, O son of Jesse, peace, peace to you, and peace, that is shalom, to him who helps you. Indeed, your God helps you. And then David received them, and he made them captains of the band. So the Lord comes in and He intervenes and He confirms the hearts of these men to David. So that David doesn't need to worry. They really are with me. And God shows him that. And then in verse 19 it says, From Manasseh also some defected to David, when he was about to go to battle with the Philistines against Saul. But they did not help him. For the lords of the Philistines after consultation sent him away, saying, At the cost of our heads he may defect to his master Saul. These men from Manasseh, They come over to join David at an interesting time in his life. David is at this point coming back from being allied with the Philistines. Actually, he's headed back to Ziklag. And what he had been doing is is also an interesting story. I believe another sign of God's intervention. Because David was in a pickle. Living over there in Ziklag, kind of wearing two faces, you know, oh yeah, I'm with you Philistines, Oh, I'm going to fight for Judah. He gets called upon, he and his men get tapped to join in and be part of the army of the Philistines and they all gather up and they are about to go and fight against Israel something David had not done never had done and if he were to fight in this battle can you imagine him ever being made king can you imagine Israel ever coming to David and saying oh you fought against us but go ahead and be king over us it wouldn't have happened and David is, is up there in this tight spot why is he up there boy there's all kinds of conjecture all we can know for certain is he was there and he was with his men kind of at the tail end of all these Philistines ready to fight Israel. And King Achish, he felt good about it, but the commanders of the Philistines came down and they said, uh-uh, we can't have David go. I mean, if, if we're in the middle of the battle, he could turn on us. It's just not good thinking. And Achish, well, he just says, you know, David, I trust you, <laughs> but my men don't. So I need you to turn back. And I think the Lord really intervened there, kind of protected him against what was coming. The chronicler acknowledges this close call but makes it clear here that David was not part of the battle against his own people. And that's important to know. He didn't fight against his own people. Never. Even though he was living in Philistine country. But verse 20 going on, says, As he went to Ziklag, there defected to him from Manasseh, Abna, Jehazabad, Jediel Michael, Jehazabad, Elihu, and by the way, when you see like Jehazabad twice, those are two different Jazabats. Don't let that surprise you. There are two different Johns, three or four Marks, a bunch of Harrys. I mean, you know, we're all, these names, when they're common names, are used more than once. So when you see two names close together like that, there's two different guys. Elihu and Zilathi, captains of thousands who belonged to Manasseh, they helped David against the band of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor, and they were captains in the army. For day by day, Men came to David to help him until there was a great army, I like this, like the army of God. David had an army that is compared to the army of God. I like that. That's comforting to me. God's got an army. He's called the Lord of hosts. You've heard that phrase used. Do you realize it's used 527 times in the Bible? The Lord is called the Lord of hosts. Anybody have any doubt as to whether or not God can stand up and fight when He needs to? He is the Lord of hosts. He is great in power and might. Psalm 3, verse 6, David writes, "...I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek." I love this one. "...You have shattered the teeth of the wicked." <laughs> Ouch. "...Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people." So God's got an army. What are you afraid of? Verse 23. Now these are the numbers of the divisions equipped for war who came to David at Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. And if you continue down now throughout the rest of the chapter... It lists in Numbers the men of all Israel, tribe by tribe, Judah, Simeon, Levi, Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali, the Danites, Asher, the Reubenites, Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the way down through verse 37 and gives the numbers of all these guys who came to David at Hebron to make him their king. In verse 38, all these being men of war who could draw up in battle formation came to Hebron with a perfect heart. To make David king over all Israel. And all the rest also of Israel were of one mind to make David king. And they were there with David three days, eating and drinking, for their kinsmen had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near to them, even as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, they brought food on donkeys, and camels, and mules, and on ox and on oxen, great quantities of flour cakes, fig cakes, and bunches of raisins, wine, oil, oxen, and sheep. Oh, there was joy indeed in Israel. That's a great picture, this massive celebration. Now when they come to... Listen, Jewish people know how to celebrate. And when they came to David at Hebron, it was a huge feast and celebration, calling him king. And I love that it says that they came to him, verse 38, with a perfect heart. A perfect heart. The Hebrew phrase there is Shalem from the word Shalom. Shalem, Leb. And what it literally means is a complete or... A covenanted peace. That's what Shalem means. A peace by covenant. A full, complete peace. And then heart. It's saying a complete heart. A full heart. A unified, peaceful heart. All the people there with one heart and one mind supporting David. And they they celebrated because they finally had a peaceful understanding. They were finally a people again. After Saul died, it was civil war for seven years. It was a big mess in Israel, but now they're all together in one place. And Psalm 133, verse 1, that, that great verse, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I have often thought, how is it possible, Lord in our day and age, for us to gather the churches together. You know, all the denominations and the different approaches and the different, you know, shapes and sizes and tastes and flavors and whatever you want to call it, of all the denominations, even here in the in these islands. How wonderful. If we could all be of a perfect heart before the Lord. I believe that's what it's called for. I'll be honest, I don't know how to do it. I even find myself when, when someone says, why aren't you aligned with this church? The first thing that comes to my mind is, well, what do they teach? Are they teaching the truth? Is Jesus at the center of what's going on? And it is hard because you, you want so much to, to be about the business of the Lord and you're just not sure. And, and you know, when you don't know people, they're always suspect. It's funny, the more you get to know someone, the less suspect they become and the more you can unify with them. In, in most cases, but Saul or Paul wrote in Philippians chapter two verse one, he said, "You know if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. I wonder if at if if, if, uh, if Philippi, If There already was starting to be some divisions within the church. Maybe the people who wanted to meet on Saturday and those who met Sunday night and those who met Sunday and they just were not all getting along. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look merely out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. That's a great sentence because it refers to what he had already said and it refers to what he's about to say. Have this attitude in yourselves which was in Christ. What attitude? The attitude of a perfect heart. Of unity. But also the attitude of sacrifice. Because then Paul goes on to talk about Jesus becoming human and being sacrificed on the cross. Like Israel, gang, when we come together around the Son of David, our great King Jesus, it's amazing. When we worship together the name of Jesus, when He is first and He is primary, all of our petty differences tend to fall away. I really think that the key to gathering the churches together is worship. That if we could do that, I'm not about to announce a big worship night, I'm just thinking of this right now as we're talking But I'll tell you what, there's going to be a great day of worship around the throne when finally all the people of God will have a perfect heart. Because we'll all be looking at the same person. We'll all be looking at Jesus. One more quick thing to note about this awesome celebratory feast that accompanies David's inaugural anointing over Israel. It is predictive and it is prophetic of that time when we will gather in celebration around the son of David at his inauguration. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, and in a similar way, it says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. By the way, the mountain is Zion. Right there in Jerusalem. There's going to be a serious party. Now, the Jewish people understood this. In fact, in the 400 years between the Testaments, after the last of the Hebrew Scriptures was written, the last of the Prophets, And then John the Baptist came along. In between there, every Passover, the majority of Jewish people would celebrate Passover not only looking back but looking forward to this coming of Messiah. They longed for it. The empty chair you've heard about, the the, go check the door to see if Elijah's come, who's going to be the forerunner of Messiah. The Passover became more and more celebratory as, as a looking forward during that time, right up until when Jesus actually came and they missed Him for the most part. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from east and west. East and west of where, Lord? East and west of Israel. Many are going to come from other places and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's referring to that feast Isaiah talked about. The feast that is so similar to this feast that they had with David. And Revelation uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 2. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And then we jump ahead to Revelation 19, which tells us, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that feast is coming. And you can read over these few verses here, but I'll tell you what. For all the flour cakes, fig cakes, pancakes, whatever cakes they had, raisins and bunches of fruit, and all that they brought in, and all the meat and all the wine that they had, it has nothing on the celebration of that day when we gather around the son of David. You can skip chapter 13 completely. We covered it on Sunday, that tragic journey of the Ark of the Covenant from the home of Abinadab to the home of Obed-Edom rather than to Jerusalem where it was intended. That's as far as it got because poor Uzzah stuck out his hand and touched the Ark and died immediately. So the ark is now in Obed-edom's house verse 14 chapter 14 picks up. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees, masons and carpenters to build a house for him. David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. Finally David gets it. Everything is in place. My first anointing by Samuel when I was a kid. I remember thinking then, when will this be? And here it is. God has fulfilled all of His promises. Everything that, that followed the anointing. It's here. It's now. I'm in my place. I have peace. I have the people. What a wonderful time. What a great place of ease. And you would think that right here is the time of David's greatest spiritual enjoyment. Not so. As a matter of fact, you got to watch out for the days of ease. Because the days of ease are not the days that build your faith. During these days of ease, verse 3, David took more wives at Jerusalem. He became the father of more sons and daughters. This was a prolific man. These are the names of the children born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elpalet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama. Beliada and Alephalet. So all these kids... And I'm not saying that more kids means more trouble, although it can be a challenge. But I am saying more wives (laughs) means more trouble. And between you and me, I barely understand one. I cannot even... When Solomon comes along and has all those wives and concubines... I mean, so many wives and concubines, he could go two years and not see the same wife each day. I mean, I would be in therapy constantly just to understand. I don't know what she said this, but then she came along and said, well, then the other one said that. I don't know what any of them are saying. I I don't get it. David sadly passes his womanizing on to his sons. This is a father's legacy. And when did it happen for David? Days of ease. When did the sin with Bathsheba happen? Days of ease. the springtime when all the kings go off to war and David said, you guys go fight; I'm going to hang out. I'm going to stay in Zion because I love Zion. We fool ourselves when we think that sitting back and coasting and relaxing deepens our faith. It never does. That's not to say quietness isn't important or stealing ourselves before the Lord or retreating is not important. But what builds our faith, gang, is hardship. It's struggle. It's difficulty. That's where our faith gets stronger. That's where we begin to recognize that we don't have any power to handle this, but God does and He's going before us. David is at ease and so he's taking on wives and he's making a mess of his family. It's in times of struggle that we see David as a man of great faith. Not in days of ease. But once again, the writer of Chronicles doesn't really deal with this mess. Remember, the Chronicles is the messianic line, not the messy line. (laughs) So, he has David and Solomon typifying the Messiah to come. But I mention this messy family because, again, it was for the most part birthed in easy times. Well, going on, verse 8. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, and the Philistines went up in search of David, and David heard of it and went out Against them. Now the Philistines had come and made a raid in the valley of Rephaim. Now watch this. David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? And will you give them into my hand? Then the Lord said to them, Go up, for I will give them into your hand. So they came up to Baal-Perazim, and David defeated them there. And David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand. Note that. God broke through by my hand. Like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, they named that place Baal-perazim. They abandoned their gods there, so David gave the order, and they were burned with fire. That is, all their idols. They just had a big massive bonfire with the Philistine idols that they left behind as they fled. The Philistines made yet another raid in the valley. Verse 14, David inquired again of God. Now, hold it right there. And we saw this on Sunday. Every time David in his life stood on his own two feet, leaned on himself or the counsel of men, he stumbled. But every time David inquires of the Lord, he succeeds. David now inquires of the Lord and succeeds, but but notice that he inquires of the Lord twice. David inquired of the Lord, verse 10, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? It seems to me that the second time would be superfluous. Why are you inquiring of the Lord again, David? David. Don't you know He's going to take down the Philistines? They're the enemies of Israel. You already prayed. And how often have I done this in my own life? Maybe you have too. You pray about something, and when the same situation comes up again, you don't pray about it again because God already answered the prayer. I'm already good to go. Why do I need to check with the Lord once again? I love this picture. Because it's the same enemy. It's a similar situation. And David... Didn't really need to pray again. We kind of know what the answer would be. Except that if he hadn't. If he hadn't inquired of the Lord, he would have missed something of great value. God moves in different ways. Even in the same situation that repeats itself. You may have a a child, parents at home, that's giving you grief. And you pray about that. And get through that, and, and they mature. And then along comes the next one, and they go into the same thing. But you're not praying about it. You're just using the same wisdom and tactics that you'd learned the first time around, instead of the second time going to the Lord. We miss something when we don't always inquire of God. And David would have missed this had he not inquired. Watch this. David inquired again of God, and God said to him, You shall not go up after them. Huh? Well, you just told me to, And we read them, and Nap, I don't. I'm not supposed to circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. Okay? It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall go out to battle, for God will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. David did just as God had commanded them, and they struck down the army of the Philistines from Gibeon even as far as Getzer... I love that story. Totally different battle. Same enemy, same situation. Should we go up against them? First time God says yes. David goes up and what does he say after the battle? God has given them by my hand. God works through me. But it was through me. It was my hand that God used. And so when David inquires inquires again, God goes, okay, we're not going to do this the same way. This time you wait until you hear the marching in the trees. By the time David and his men show up, God has already routed the enemy. They just did the clean-up work. What are you saying, Rick? Simply that God made it absolutely clear the second time it was not by the might of David that there was a victory. It was by the power of God. And had he not inquired twice, he never would have known that. In fact, if he continued to not inquire, as so often we do, we miss out on the work of the Holy Spirit. The the true power work of God. Oh, you can do it yourself. Pray once, get some advice from the Lord, take that and run with it, and do it your whole life, and you're going to miss so many opportunities to watch God glorified. Not the power of your hand. Even saying God worked through me somewhat helps my arrogance, you know? <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what, the Lord helped me build that church. Lord, help me. The Lord helped me. I mean, it. Just, doesn't that just... Encourage the ego, but to stand back and go, I have no idea how it happened, except the Lord, because I you know I showed up and suddenly people were there I'm like wow okay, God did this. He marched in the trees. Inquire every time of the Lord. Let Him prove that He's going out before you. I love this verse, Isaiah 13, verse 4. A sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people. A sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. His army marching in the trees, an angelic army. The point is this, without the supernatural interference of the Lord, David would have missed it and thought the battle was all his. But Paul writes in Philippians 2.13... It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. For His good pleasure. So verse 17 goes on and says, Then the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him on all the nations. Now, chapters 15 and 16, we're going to move quickly through them. They pick up on the story that we left off in in, uh, chapter 13. Now we get the description of the right way to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to Him forever. Good job, David. You're paying attention. You're doing it right this time. David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. See, now David also is ready for it, whereas before he wasn't. David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites of the sons of Kohath. Uriel the chief and 120 of his relatives of the sons of Merari uh, Isaiah Isaiah the, the chief and 220 of his relatives of the sons of Gershom Joel the chief and 130 of his relatives of the sons of Elizaphan, Shemeiah the chief and 200 of his relatives of the sons of Hebron Eliel the chief and 80 of his relatives of the son of Uziel Aminadab the chief and 112 of his relatives literally 862 Levites are now called together <laughs> this is great That first time in chapter 13, David had Uzzah and Ahio. Two guys, probably not even Levites, on either side of the cart carrying the ark. But now they are going to carry the ark the right way, and he's got all the Levites he can call. All there, because David says, I want to do this in a way that honors God, not in a way that is easy for us. So it gives all those numbers. We're down now to, where are we? Verse 11. Verse 11. Then David called for Zadok and Abiatar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel and Isaiah and Joel and Shimei and Eliel and Aminadab. And he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek Him according to the ordinance. Boy. David has done his homework. David has now, since the last attempt, he has gone back to the Word. How do you know that? Because now he's quoting it. Now he is referring directly to the ordinance. You've got to consecrate yourselves. You've got to have Levites here. The the ark is to be carried. We are going to do this according to the Word of the Lord. And gang, even though the ordinance has been written, even though it sits in our laps, sometimes we disregard it. We need to be continual in our seeking of the Lord prayerfully, but also we've got to be continual in our seeking of the Scriptures, biblically. Be constant in the Word. Because when we're not, we start to get off, and it's so easy. Sometimes just little, tiny little moves. Small moves that get us off of the path and away from what really honors God. And that's just what happened with David. He wasn't paying attention. No one was checking the Word when they brought the ark up on the cart. No one was looking as to how God wanted it done. You carry carried the ark. And it's got to be Levites doing the carrying. Well, now David has the word. Now he's understanding it. Verse 14 going on tells us, So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark on their shoulders with the poles thereon as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord as we said Sunday, the difference between the right way and the wrong way is simple. It's as simple as saying yes to the right way who is Jesus Christ. Now praise God, we don't have the law to deal with anymore. Praise God, we've been freed from the law by Jesus who fulfilled the law. So we don't have 613 different laws that we have to consult. We go to Jesus. We say yes to Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, verse 17 on down to verse 24 is going to list all of the musicians, the Levitical worship leaders and singers. And in verse 25, it tells us, So it was David, and the elders of Israel, and the captains over thousands, who went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. Because God was helping the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. I love that. They didn't need a cart. They just needed trust in the Lord. If the Ark got heavy, who helped? God did. God did. He helped them do it. And they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. And by the way, we know from, uh, was it 2 Samuel 6? We know it wasn't just seven bulls and seven rams. That was the sacrifice when they arrived. But what they did was every six steps from Obed-Eden's house all the way to Jerusalem, they walked six feet, stopped, and sacrificed an oxen and a fatling. Six more feet, stopped, and offered an oxen and a fatling all the way to Jerusalem six steps at a time. It's a good lesson in that. Six is the number of man. And about every six steps, I need to stop and recognize the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In fact, it works for me. About every six days or so on the seventh day, stop and recognize the sacrifice. We share communion together. We take six steps and we acknowledge the sacrifice of Jesus. Where am I? Uh, hmm? Hmm? 27, now David, thank you. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen with all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and and Shenaiah, the leader of the singing with the singers. And David also wore an ephod of linen. Thus all Israel brought up the ark and the covenant of the Lord was shouting and with the sound of the horn and with trumpets and loud sounding cymbals and harps and lyres, it had, which didn't mean that people were not truthful, it was, you know, stringed instrument. It happened when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. Now, quickly, some have sided with Michael on this. Because when you read the account and what she says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, you might think, wow, David really was kind of not wearing much. It was embarrassing. He's out there in a toga doing a little dance and that... You know, that's not something the king should be doing. Listen to what Michael said. When she sees David coming back, and this is a bummer for David, because he sent all Israel away in joy to their homes, and he comes back to his home, and no doubt he's singing, We got the ark to the to the rub the ark to the yeah. and, and he's excited. And as he walks up, Michael goes, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servant's maids, as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. Here in Chronicles, we learn something. David did not uncover himself. This was Michael's perspective. She looked at him and she said, I don't like what you're wearing. She had an issue with his wardrobe. What was his wardrobe? Verse 27 here tells us exactly what David was wearing. He had on a linen robe, which would have run down below the knees, and over that, a linen ephod. Why is he dressed this way? Because that was the simple outfit of a Levitical servant. This is not what the high priest wore. I mean, he had quite a bit more on. But underneath all of that, even the high priest had a simple linen robe. And the Levites working, carrying the Ark, working in the temple, taking care of the temple service, the linen robe and the linen ephod. That was Levitical wear. David was not dancing around in a toga. He wasn't dancing around in his underwear before the Ark. He was not uncovered in that way at all. He was wearing the outfit of humility. And Michael didn't like it. You could read into her words, you don't look like a king. I thought I married a king. And here comes a little servant boy with all the, you look like all the other little servants out there. And it's embarrassing to me. David was dressed in humility. Dressed for service. Michael had issue with that. So Michael never had a child. The rest of her life she was barren. Maybe because the Lord cursed her and would not let her have kids, but another possibility is because David would not go into her anymore after that. Whatever it is, she never had a child of her, Lord, uh, of her own. David humbled himself before the Lord. David responded to her, and I love this, Second Samuel 6.20, he said, "...it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and over his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel." And that's not a statement of arrogance, that's a statement of absolute fact. I was appointed ruler over all Israel, therefore I will celebrate before the Lord. Therefore, because He made me over all, He said, I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. Think about the contrast of what David's saying. God made me king of all, and so I am humble. Well, Why, David? Why wouldn't you be arrogant? Because God made me king. Because God gave me a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. He put me in this place. And that is a humbling thought. There's a bit of truth in there. When God does the glorifying in our lives, our natural response is humility. When we do the glorifying in our lives, the natural response is arrogance. And that's kind of how you know if the glory is coming from God as opposed to you. If the glory comes and... You know, maybe someone says something kind about you, about your works of service, about what you're doing, and your reaction is, well, then you know it's coming from the wrong place. But if it comes from the Lord and you're lifted up, it's almost embarrassing. It's, It's humbling. And that's when you know God is bringing the glory. By the way, is there something familiar about David's outfit here? He's wearing a linen robe. Revelation 19, verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. Bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. There's a connection there, gang. Fine linen, the representation is of service. The saint who serves. And that fine linen is the picture. Of how the bride dresses herself, how the church readies herself for her coming groom by service, by humble service. Now, chapter 16 is primarily a chronicle of the praise song that was written for this occasion. It tells us that uh, in verse 1, they brought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it, and they offered the burnt offerings and the peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and a raisin cake. I always think that's nice, a little raisin cake thrown in there. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief, second to him, Zechariah, then Yale, and then uh, and by the way, who later founded a university, then Shimeramoth and Yahel and Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, obed and Yale again, a second Yale, so there were two universities, with musical instruments, harps, lyres, and also Asaph played loud-sounding cymbals. Benaiah and Yahaziel, the priests, blew trumpets continually before the ark of the covenant of God. Now the first half of the song, beginning there, In uh, verse 8, it says in verse 7, On that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. And if you recognize Asaph's name, by the way, it's because he wrote many of the Psalms that we have in the book of Psalms. But this this song here, the first half of it, verses 8 through 22, is word for word, it's Psalm 105. So you can notate that if you'd like to in your Bibles. The second half, on down from verse 23 on, with the exception of about the last two lines, is Psalm 96. So it's, it's broken apart and put into the book of Psalms as two separate Psalms, but here it's all one. I'd like to read it for you before we go out tonight. Verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Speak of all His wonders. Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. If we just did verses 8-11 through every morning when we got up, we would have some good days. It would be hard to have a bad day when you start out with that attitude and that heart. Seek His face continually. Verse 12, Remember His wonderful deeds which He has done. His marvels and the judgments from His mouth. Oh, seed of Israel, His servants, sons of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember His covenant forever. If we just looked at those verses when we're in times that we don't feel like God is hearing us, we would be so much better off. Psalm 77 is a great psalm where the writer says, All night long I cried out to the Lord until my eyes were dry, until my tongue was sticking to the roof of my mouth, until I had no breath in me. I just cried out and He did not answer me. And He says, to what should I appeal? I will remember the ways of the Lord. I will think about His mighty deeds, how He brought the people through the water and through the desert. And He goes off then on this this memory cycle, which is such a wonderful way to deal with those times of silence in our lives. I'm saying, God, I need your help, and I'm not hearing anything, it's in those days that you refer to when He did respond to the mighty deeds. And if you can't find one in recent memory, go back to the cross. And remember, remember, remember the covenant that God made with you there. Verse 15, remember His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to, to a thousand generations. The covenant He made with Abraham. His oath to Isaac. He also confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Oh, and now the chronicler is, is bringing that in. He's reminding us via this psalm the line of Messiah is specific and goes straight from Isaac to Abraham through Isaac Jacob down through Israel saying, verse 18, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance when there were only a few they were only a few in number very few and strangers in it. Remember how many Jacob took down to Egypt when Joseph was there? Seventy. There were seventy people. That was it. That was all of Israel. Four hundred years later, they came back some three million strong. During all those days of slavery and hardship, God grew the people. He says, they wandered about from nation to nation, verse 20, and from one kingdom to another people, and He permitted no man to oppress them. And He reproved kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch My anointed ones and do My prophets no harm. Now it shifts over to Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord. That means give to the Lord. O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. And that doesn't mean put on a nice suit and tie or get out your best dress. Holy array means the splendor of God's holiness. To be dressed literally in His righteousness. To come before Him dressed in the splendor of His greatness. Verse 30, Tremble before Him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Literally, Yahweh reigns. Let the sea roar and, its, and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. I love this little hint, for He is coming. Oh, He is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And then say, save us. What is the word save us? Anybody remember? Hosanna. Hosanna, He says. O God of our salvation, and gather us and deliver us from the nations to give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting Then all the people said, one word, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And that, by the way, is our rally cry. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our rally cry, our word is Amen. That is the word we are invited to say. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.18, As God is faithful... Our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no. You're saved. You might not be saved. You're with me. I'm not sure if I want you. Yes and no. Back and forth. No. The answer is yes in Him. For as many are the promises of God in Him, they are yes. Therefore, also through Him is our amen. Our yes, Lord. That's what amen means. Yes, Lord. Sometimes I just say that instead of amen. Because it's kind of fun. In Jesus' name, yes, Lord. (laughs) Make it so. Let it happen, Lord. Yes to His promises. Paul is saying there's no guesswork in the Gospel. You don't have to wonder. It's a sure thing. A done deal. Faith in Jesus yields eternal life. Yes, Lord. Verse 37, we finish up. So he left Asaph and his relatives there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark continually as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with his 68 relatives. Obed-Edom also the son of Jeduthun so there's a second Obed-Edom. And Hosa as gatekeepers. Now that's, that's with the Ark there in Jerusalem but watch this. He left Zadok the priest and his relatives the priest before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place which was at to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering continually morning and evening even according to all that is written in the law of the Lord which he commanded Israel. With them were Heman and Jejuthun and the rest who were chosen who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his loving kindness is everlasting. And with them were Heman and Jejuthun with trumpets and cymbals for those who should sound aloud And with instruments for the songs of God and the sons of Jejuthun for the gate. Then all the people departed, each to his house, and David returned to bless his household. So here's the last thing to note. Apparently there were for a time in Israel two places of worship when David was first king. In fact, through his entire reign, two places of worship. The original Mosaic tabernacle remained at Gibeon. Where it had been moved, it originally was at Shiloh, then it ended up at Nob, and somehow ended up at Gibeon. but that's where it was at this point, the tabernacle with the, the altar and all the other, you know, the lampstand and the table of showbread, all that, but no ark. So the Holy of Holy place, it was empty at Gibeon, where the tabernacle was, the ark is in a tent that David pitched for it there in Jerusalem, two places of worship. And you look at that and think, well, wait a minute. There's a right way and a wrong way. <laughs> Shouldn't the ark be in the tabernacle? Isn't that the right way? Isn't that the way it was all set up? I mean, legally speaking, Lord, how is this okay? I'm not sure that it is. And there were two concurrent high priests. There was Abiathar, who was in Jerusalem with the ark of the covenant, and there was Zadok in Gabeon with the tabernacle. What's going on? That all I can figure is this. David said in Psalm 51.16 you do not delight in sacrifice otherwise I would give it you are not pleased with burnt offering the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart O God you will not despise by your favor do good to Zion build the walls of Jerusalem then you will delight in righteous sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offering then young bulls will be sacrificed on your altar what is he saying here David, after the sin of Bathsheba, is returning to the Lord in heart, mind, and soul. And he's praying to God and he's realized something. It ought not to have been that the tabernacle was in one place and the ark in the other. But you know what? God didn't mind so much. Why? Because David's heart was right. Because he was a man after God's own heart. Because in both places, the people were called to worship God with a right heart. So even though they kind of got it wrong, I think I've told them here before, the first church I did youth ministry at, a a gentleman was serving communion one morning, and he accidentally prayed for the juice first and started to pass that out. Oh no. I mean, we were all shocked. Had a meeting, kicked him out of the church. I mean, we took care of it, you know. It was so funny to me, because I sat there watching this, and he was mortified that he had gotten it in the wrong order. And I remember thinking, I'm not so sure God's concerned about the order as much as He is the heart. And that's what we bring to Him and that's what David brought. He brought a real heart to God. And when the heart is right, you know, the sacrifices will come. The temple will get built right there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and the sacrifices would begin again. But the sacrifices, as far as God is concerned, are nothing when the heart's not right. When David was king... For the most part, his heart was right. He loved the Lord. And so even though there's this strange tabernacle there, ark here disparity, God still received and accepted the worship of the people. Because it's never been about religious ritual with God. It's always been about the right heart. And that's good to know. Maybe this dual situation is why in the next chapter, which we won't cover tonight, In chapter seventeen, David's heart turns to the Lord to build a house for him in Jerusalem, the city of our king, and God says no, and we'll talk about that on Sunday. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, I thank you just for the ability for everybody to stick with us and cover so much ground again tonight, but but we're thankful to walk over this, even in this broader overview, to see what you're doing in this line of Mashiach, the Davidic line of the kingdom. Father, we see and we acknowledge from Your Word tonight the importance of Your holy city, Jerusalem, of Zion. That place where You set Your own name and where You delight, Lord. And so because of that, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray, Father, that it would no longer be a city divided, but it would become elevated as that great city of our great King, our Lord Jesus. We long for and look forward to that day. And until then, we continue to pray, Bring Shalom to the city of peace, to Jerusalem. And Father, we recognize in the way that You worked in David's life and the mighty men's life and so many lives throughout these pages that we yet have much to learn. But Lord, if we will simply put our faith in Jesus, I believe You will build us up. And so Holy Spirit, continue to do so. And if that means trouble and struggles, then we accept that as Your will. And we just pray we might trust you more. We praise you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray tonight. Yes. Amen. God bless you all.